Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 14 years of law enforcement analysis experience. We met as part of the IACA Standards, Methods, and Technology Committee over 10 years ago. She is a police department analyst turned fire department analyst representing the great state of Virginia. Please welcome Jessica LeBlanc. Jessica, how are we doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for having me. It is good to talk to you after all these years. I know. It's been a while. (laughs) Yeah, I was just thinking, prepared for this interview, I was like, oh, the SMT committee, that's that's one of those things when I look back at it, it's like, oh, man, I, I definitely hung on too long to that committee. I should have resigned from that was, chair like a year before. I definitely had senioritis my last year. That was a long project, but it was it was cool. It was worthwhile doing. I kind of always felt like the junior on the on the panel, if you will, kind of working with people that I'd always looked up to or yeah. wanted to be more like. So it was a very cool experience for me to, to work on that project. Those uh, papers are still floating out there. And I just had Rachel, uh, I want to call her Rachel Boba, but that Ra- yeah. Rachel Santos <laughs> on the show. And, she, you know, some of the stuff that she developed in those white papers are still in her textbook. Yeah. So there's those, some of those ideas that we did 10 plus years ago are still floating around there. So, yeah, I still I still ping her, actually. She's obviously at Radford now in in Virginia. So I was actually just chatting with her last year, picking her brain on some statistics questions I had to make sure I wasn't completely off base. As big as she is, she's pretty accessible. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, which is which is nice. So. All right. So. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? <laughs> so it, Rachel Bob is kind of an, or Santos now is an interesting segue. So I, like I was, I was saying earlier, forever ago, when I was deciding what to do with my life, crime analysis was not a thing. And I decided in high school that I wanted to be Clarice Starling. And, you know, like the summer before I graduated, the OJ Simpson trial was wrapping up, if that ages me at all. It does, um, but I'll, I'll, we'll take it. <laughs> So um, I go to school to get a degree in psychology and end up with a, a criminal justice minor. And and through that, met with some awesome professors that gave me some great opportunities for kind of research in the, in the criminal justice field. So I was like watching people shoplift from CVS and meeting with victims of domestic violence to you know chat with them about their experiences. And that really kind of pushed me farther into criminal justice than it did psychology, but stubborn. And so right after college, I applied to all clinical psych programs, going to get my PhD and become a child psychologist specifically for juvenile delinquents, which is hysterical for anyone who knows me because, (laughs) I mean, that profession takes so much patience and empathy. And those are probably not words that most people would use to describe me. Um, so that's why you work at the fire department, right? <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> so, you know, I sent out all those applications and every single one of them came back with a no, thank you. And so take a year off, try again and start applying to master's programs in criminology and criminal justice. But at this point now I'm super into the law and I decide I'm going to go to law school and just get a joint JD and master's. I took the LSAT and I sat on a bunch of law school wait lists. And ultimately just ended up going to University of Maryland for criminology and criminal justice, which is where I met Rachel. Still was not into policing, was not on my radar. I was still kind of into the whole corrections and research thing with my eye towards a PhD at some point. And then I took her crime mapping class. And that was the first that I had heard of it. We learned how to use ARC 3.1, again, dating myself here. But she was so cool and so relatable and um, we had class like in a bar once or twice. It was a small class and it was more like a conversation piece. That's when I learned that you could use colors to tell a story that didn't have to be in, in black and white. I know like a years long research project or something like that. It was kind of like the first time that like tactical problem solving in a like a police setting or an operational setting was presented as like a career option. So to her chagrin, I did not get my master's. I took it all the way to like two thirds of the way through my thesis. She was on my 
committee and I decided I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and I didn't. <laughs> I had already gotten a job at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And I was kind of digging through cyber tips and ICQ messages and AOL chats and LimeWire and email headers for child pornography and, and pushing that off to police departments. So I was like, I don't need my master's. I already have my job. And she pushed me for a couple of years after that to go back and finish. And I didn't. So now I had, you know, outstanding loans for a degree I never got, but I just tell myself, like I took the classes, I did well. I just didn't get the piece of paper at the end. Mm. But Anyway, so working at NCMEC, which is a super cool job, is where I learned to speak police because I had to cold call law enforcement agencies and try to get them to take these cases of child exploitation. I had a case uh, in a really super small town in West Virginia where I ended up with the police chief on the phone. That's how tiny it was. He took the tip, arrested the guy, called me you know, in the middle of the operation to tell me that they they got him. And I was like, okay, so I, I need to move even closer to law enforcement and to a police department. And <laughs> so I, I applied for Fairfax County, had an opening for a crime analyst. I applied for it. I was late for the interview because I got pulled over for speeding <laughs> on the way there. And now that I think about it, I don't even think it was county police that pulled me over. I think it was city police because I was not in the county when I got pulled over. I was driving through the city, which is right in the middle. So, but, you know, ultimately they, they gave me the job and... You must have knocked it out of the park. Well, I come to find later, I was not their first choice. <laughs> nice. So, yeah. So I, but I don't know if there were multiple openings or if everybody else failed. I don't know. Like <laughs> it, it, it was, it was lining up to not be uh, what was in the stars, but I did get the job and I was there for 14 years and that's how I landed as a crime analyst. I didn't know that, you know, you and I, I think had similar schools of thought. I basically went to school until I found a job. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of advisors would tell you not to do that, but that's what I did. And so it seemed like you did something similar. Yeah. And I, I still think it's funny that I was dead set on being a clinical psychologist. And then I kind of shifted into like being with the juvenile delinquents. And I still like through grad school and through you know college, I did work on a lot of research projects in that in that space. And I just, I don't know why I was so stuck on it. I guess Violence of the Lambs was just a big deal. I actually ended up uh, interning with the behavioral sciences unit with the FBI, which I guess now is behavioral analysis unit. But when I was at Maryland, interned with them and I was in the basement of the you know, National FBI Academy for several months doing work on cyber tip stuff and still was kind of looking at the Clary Starling path. And I, you know, having worked with the FBI for a couple of months, decided federal is not my jam. That's not a good fit. Um, but while I was there, I still took my picture and like every, you know, iconic scene from Silence of the Lambs that Clary Starling was in. So that was, I have yeah. those photos. Hogan's Alley. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I did the yellow brick road. I, every, I actually went back down to Hogan's Alley when I was with the police department as a role player for their civil disturbance unit. So, yeah. Yeah. I I think that's one thing that I would stress to somebody that's maybe just coming out of high school into college that, man, it's, it's so hard to predict what you're going to be in five years when you're 18 years old. Because and, you haven't been exposed to anything. Oh, yet. exactly. And there's just so many things that you're going to try and it might take a little bit here. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, I do like this. Give me more of this. And it's just like, there's so much out there that it's it's hard from my point of view to just know what you want to do at 18 years old. Mm -hmm. It is. So go out there and try different stuff. So with your work with Exploited Children's Center. What did you learn there that you brought into your job as an analyst? So I learned very quickly about details and articulation. And so at the time I did not have kids. It was a super small unit and like Facebook didn't even exist. MySpace did not exist. So that's how long ago this was. Um, and so we're looking at actual images and looking through the metadata behind those pictures or looking at email headers and you're you're trying to spot the mistake. You're like, wh where is the jump where they forgot to encrypt what they're doing? And so you're digging through mind numbing text and numbers looking for the mistake and then you find it and it's not enough. You have to go into it a little bit further and you have to nail it down to a jurisdiction. And at the time, people that were using AOL, that came back to 
Dulles, Virginia, which is where the AOL server farm was or whatever. And so you, you're having to backtrack and creepy crawl all through the internet and, and try to tie a person to a place. And that was a, a skill that I, I still do today. That's what once an analyst, always an analyst. So, you know, someone's like, Hey, I can't find this person. Like, give me five minutes. I'll find them. <laughs> um, what do they have for breakfast on Tuesday? I'll figure mm-hmm. it out. So yeah. So persevering and, and trying to like not quit the second that it gets hard uh, because that was an important job. Not that like crime analysis is an important job, but that was a really important job for someone who was like, you know, early twenties, that's a, a big deal. And you just kind of feel super obligated to win because you're talking about a child who's either been exploited or is in the middle of being exploited. So the stakes felt really high to win and find the person. And so then once you find them, you have to articulate to some random person on the other end of the line that you know what you're talking about and that this person or this victim is in their jurisdiction. And we did have some fusion centers, I guess, that are all over the country, but those were not quite as big back then. This was almost 20 years ago. And so you had to just, you know, Google Harper's Ferry Police Department and dial the number and say, I need to talk to somebody about child exploitation case and get through. And so I, I learned very quickly that formal didn't work with the police. Um, you kind of have to be very conversational and relaxed and use buzzwords. And so that that's where I learned to speak police. That's where I learned how to talk to investigators and mostly investigators is where I tried to end up going when I was sending those tips off. So, so it's either abbreviations or two syllable or less words, right? Yeah. I mean, and sometimes <laughs> you're looking up code, you know, legal code in the place where you're calling to be like, no, this is the code I'm talking about. Specifically, this is the law that I think is being broken. And this is why I think that this person or this child is in, because if, if they can't nail down jurisdiction, they're not interested. Like you, I, so I had to package it. I had to make it easy. And like I said, like winning, you had to, like losing was not an option in a job like that. So then it's, this is 2004 and you're walking in to the patrol bureau at Fairfax County Police Department for the first time yeah. as an employee. And so let's just take that back. Like, what were you thinking? What were some goals that you had going into the job? What was, what was it like those first couple of months? Well, I wanted to do more of what I was doing at NECMEC. I wanted to go find the bad guys, but I also wanted to do the stuff that Rachel had taught at Maryland. I wanted to do the mapping. I didn't have the mapping part of my skills going on at NECMIC. And I, I just thought that that was so cool. So I wanted to do that. And when I got there, I, they, the, the unit wasn't super old. I think they, it started in 2000. So I was a newbie um, when I arrived and the training consisted of me sitting at another desk and shadowing an analyst for two weeks. And then they sent me off to my station and then they're like, go do what you watched that person do for the last two weeks. So it was very much a figure it out on your own, which I'm cool with. That's, I like doing that. I retain stuff longer when I have to figure it out by myself. So that was fine. But it's very, I mean, I would, I went to work wearing, you know, like professional clothes, skirts and dresses and heels because you know, I was, you know, young and I was like, this is a professional job. And you learn really quickly, like, you don't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're working at a police station, skirts and heels are not, not necessary. And that, in fact, like you're not going to be taken, you know, quite so seriously, just, you know, relax a little bit. So relaxing and taking myself a little less seriously came along with that job and, and made it easier to kind of communicate with the folks that I was working with there. All right. So what were, what were some tasks that you were doing for the patrol bureau? The, the patrol analyst in Fairfax is one at every station. And it's, at the time we were using a combination of SQL and access to summarize paper reports. So I would go in every morning, there was a stack of police reports in my box, and then I would just read them all. And if it was a crime that we tracked, which were at the time like part one, I would enter the case number and a narrative into an access database. And um, there was a weekly report that we would circulate via email. I'm not really sure if anybody read that, but it was a lot of just that repetitive reporting that um, I was doing at first just to kind of get to know the lay of the land and, and what kind of people I was dealing with, what kind of crimes we were dealing with. And then I was, I was working really closely with the detectives. And so 
I got a little more involved in their investigations and doing that digging that I learned how to do at NECMIC to kind of, you know, develop leads or find suspects. And so that just kind of blossomed. And then same thing, I would go and I would, you know, this took years, by the way, it's not like a month long process, but <laughs> developing this rapport with patrol and investigations took years and it, I developed a thick skin. And like I said, took myself a little less seriously, just kind of be cool, acting medium kind of thing. So then you go in and just kind of you sit in patrol, you do less talking and more listening. And then you bring them, you know, a little map and you're like, hey, next time you go to traffic court, if you need to really show the judge where the car was parked, I can just make this map for you and you, you can do less talking. And so those were the kinds of things. It was kind of like a customer service situation. Like you help out one guy and they go back to the squad and like, no, dude, she made this. And it was so much easier. And so then, you know, there's a line of customers outside your office asking for help and bio sheets and, you know. Yeah. But doesn't that, that, that just feels clerical. Um, well, it, not the work that went into it. The product, mm-hmm. yes, was, you know, I was using Word, Microsoft Word at the very beginning. I, and I still mm-hmm. use Microsoft Word sometimes. It doesn't have to get fancy. But all the digging that I was doing online to find out information on these people and help them kind of marry those cases into a cohesive argument for the judge or the jury or the prosecutor. I, I Later down the line, I really got into demonstrative evidence that turned out to be something that was really effective for our cases and that I really enjoyed doing. So I did do a lot of that. But early on when I was starting, I was doing the weekly reports. I was doing the citizen meetings and PowerPoint slides. And, you know, I, you know, at some point took an IACA class that talked about forecasting, you know, so like month to month, you're looking at, well, here's the average. And then here's the range that's outside the average. And where are we this month on burglary? So I had those little Excel spreadsheets and all that set up as well. But that, you know, obviously wasn't super fun. So this brings us to your badge story. And so during your time here at Fairfax County, what do you consider your career defining case or project? So it was kind of, I mean, that lead in makes it sound like it's a big deal, but it, and, and it, it was a big deal at the time, although it's not like I stopped a serial killer from, you know, finding his next victim. But we had a, a guy who was using a million IDs and um, basically just committing prescription fraud all over the place to the tune of, you know, tens of thousands of of dollars. And he'd been charged with uh, over 40 felonies by the time this particular case and felonies related just to prescription fraud. I don't, I don't Mm -hmm. know what the guy was doing um, before that, but it was just prescription fraud and we were just done. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he had devastated so many people, so much money, so many pills had been converted and we're like, we have to make this charge stick. And so I ended up just making, it was a word document for the judge. It was a bench trial and it's just a word document with the guy's picture. And it, you know, it says time frame, 14 months, aliases used, all 29 <laughs> of those aliases, jurisdictions affected the three that he had been through, pharmacies, five, and the names of the pharmacies, the three doctors that were the victims, 4,100 tablets of Oxy obtained, and $22,000 at the time, which was forever ago. I'm sure it would be a million dollars by now, but you know, $22,000. And all this after 40 felonies, and he had served not a single day in jail. After 40 felonies, not a single day in jail. And so this time we were like, You're, something's going to happen. And the judge gave him four years of jail time suspended and then four years of probation, which he had never mm-hmm. gotten before. And I was like, okay, this is a Word document. This took me about 30 minutes to put together. And it's the difference between this guy going back out, victimizing more doctors, ripping off more pharmacies and, you know, by the way, maintaining a pretty dangerous substance abuse um, habit that's going to kill him or somebody else at some point. So I said, okay, this is, this is what we do. We just have to make it, make the argument easier, make it pretty to look at, make it easier. And the less talking that the officer does, the less talking that the Commonwealth, the attorney has to do. And, you know, this happened to be a bench trial, but we, you know, I ended up doing a lot of this for specifically for jury trials because they're just regular people out in the world and their perception of court is law and order. So you do have to make it a little entertaining for them um, and easy to understand because if you're sitting, you know, in that box for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, you know, hours every day of 
mind-numbing information at the end of the day you want them to have something that sums it all up and you know sometimes the closing argument does that and sometimes you just need something to look at because a picture is worth a thousand words so can you go into a little bit more detail about exactly what he was doing uh, and how the doctors were victims and what was his mo so he was doctor shopping and he he was an employee of telecommunications company and he would take his id and make new his employee id and would make new ids with his same picture and just someone else's name and he was rolling through fairfax county alexandria and arlington going largely to pharmacies that are inside of grocery stores but he did go to some freestanding ones too and was just using the the doctor's dea number to fraudulently to pass fake prescriptions for oxycontin and he was paying cash for it but sometimes he was trying to bill insurance under these aliases. And I, I don't recall, so don't quote me, except this is being recorded and I will be quoted. Um, <laughs> I think that he was dumpster diving and just looking for names and insurance paperwork and um, things like that to come up with these victims. But that, I mean, we figured it out because, you know, one of the doctors was, you know, contacted and was like, I'm not, I'm not issuing that prescription. You know, that's, that's not for me. So, you know, I think it was, our, the PMP records, which are just the, the history of the doctor's prescriptions, the state system, and then uh, using that and then going back to the pharmacies to get their video was how we figured out who he was and tracked him down and kind of, I'm sure that this is a fraction of what he was doing, but it's sure. what we were able to kind of put together for this one. Yeah, yeah, because I'm thinking, I, I don't know this for sure, but normal doctor writes a prescription, gives it to their client and puts it in his or her medical file, mm -hmm. but they might not necessarily go out and examine how many prescriptions they wrote in a given month. I, yeah, I don't know right? why. I they don't know why they that would. One, they wouldn't even probably think about it this way. So the fact right. that there was this guy writing all these prescriptions fraudulently in their names, it probably would, would never come up on their radar because they're not. And plus, you got all these different pharmacies, right? It's not and, something and, that's probably easily accessible right. for to the and, doctor. And multiple branches of the same pharmacy. I mean, it, it, this was in 2004, 2005. And so like they're 40 milligram tablets of oxy. And I don't even know if you can get that anymore. I mean, now, now we're looking at like a dollar per milligram, you know, you're, you're spending so much money. Like he was only paying five, 10 bucks a pill. And he was, I don't know that he was selling much of it. I think that it was a self thing, but it was 14 month period and you know, 14 months, 29 names. That's, that's two different people a month. And again, he's going all over the place and he, and he knows that. I mean, he, he's already been committed. He's already been, you know, charged, convicted of 40 felonies. So this guy is been around the block a time or two and he you know he's much better at it which is why he did it for 14 months i don't know how you keep up with 29 different names i mean i can barely keep up with like you know the 29 different passwords i have to get into <laughs> all of the things but yeah and and, and they know you know they this, this pharmacy they're a little bit more lax they're not going to ask a lot of questions or this pharmacist a little more lax not going to ask as many questions i want to get to the part where He's been convicted of 40 felonies and hasn't spent one day in jail. So because it's, it's all probation or, you know, no process or drop charges or whatever. It, it, it was it's not super easy unless you've got video or a confession to say this person used all of these different names, you know, usurping these doctors with their own. And at the time, I think now a lot of most prescriptions anyways, I think are electronic, but mm -hmm. I mean, at the time you just walk in the doctor's office, the nurse walks out, you grab a pad of prescriptions from the drawer and roll out. And that's, that's all that there was to it. So he was successful until hmm. we, until we caught up. With less so, successful. so even with the, the word document that you created there, he still got a suspended sentence and three years of probation. Did you eventually get him after that? I don't know. I mean, this guy did not come back up on our radar. So he may have skipped town or, mm -hmm. you know, and, and again, suspended sentence. It depends on who you go up in front of after that. Maybe if the judge is feeling lenient, they're like, oh, here's, we'll just, you know, add another year onto it or something. So, but it was a huge win at the time because there had been no consequence for him. And while four years suspended and four years probation may not feel like a consequence because you're not going to jail at night, that that's a huge threat to your liberty if you get busted 
again, and, and the judge decides to actually impose the suspended sentence. So, I mean, for someone who had been getting away with this for years without any consequence whatsoever, the fact that there's something hanging over his head if he does it again and gets caught was a big deal. Okay. Huh. That is fascinating. I, and I got to believe, I, I don't know this, so I'm going to say a statement without knowing much of it, but just the amount of data that we now have about opiates, I got to believe that that stuff done today is carrying a far harsher sentence than what it was. You know. Well, now they're, they're drug courts, and so they kind of divert some of these cases yeah. to, you know, special programs. So sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. But at least, it, I mean, at least it's something. Yeah. All right. Well, so then I guess when you look back at your time with the police department, as you mentioned, you were there 14 years as you're leaving. Was there something that you were yearning that you wish you fixed, but you didn't have a chance to fix? Oh, man. Fix is an interesting word. (laughs) (laughs) I wish that I had been able to more convincingly be part of a problem-solving process as opposed to question-answerer. I wish that I was able to do more analysis for the purposes of solving a problem as opposed to answering a question, if that makes sense. I mean, I I probably stayed a year or two, maybe a little more longer than I should have. I, I was introduced to the fire department a few years before to their to the part of them doing analysis which was I didn't even consider it a few years before and then because I worked on a on a project with them for um, pedestrian crashes because we had to answer some questions for the board of supervisors and police and fire both respond to them so um, that was my first introduction to oh they have analysts over there too and then I just went I went back to what was familiar what was comfortable and I just was kind of spinning my wheels a little bit. So I'm you know, kind of developing this exit strategy and just wishing, I still, I, I very much miss uh, the patrol analyst parts of that job. Like the first decade there was my heyday. That's when I was doing, I was having so much fun. I really felt like the work that I was doing mattered and was helpful and impactful for both the police department and victims in the community a little bit more broadly. And I started to kind of lose the feeling that that's the kind of work that I was doing. And so as scary as it was to leave, I knew that I I had to try something different because it it wasn't going to get different for me with the police department. Uh, You certainly got promoted a couple of times there while you're at Fairfax. Do you think that's in line with the feeling the higher up that you went, the further you got from the, the good feeling that you described? So, I mean, I was promoted to crime analyst too. And then after that, for a very brief period, was an interim supervisor. And I think that being promoted and spending some more time at headquarters, because when I was at the Mason District, and I... I said this my whole career, as long as it's within the Mason district, those four walls, like everything's fine. Everything's cool. The second I have to leave Mason to go to a meeting at headquarters or anywhere else, that's when it gets a little sketchy and I get a little irritated and a little bit frustrated. So the more time I spent away and out of patrol, the more you see and the more you understand how the agency's running and what the priorities are. And you just, you know, the kind of, you know, conversations down the hallway. And so had I not left patrol, I may have stayed forever, but I did want to try something different. And I did enjoy the time that I was at our operations support bureau working, you know, with traffic and with squad. And that did open the door for me to work with fire. So, I mean, all things happen for a reason. I think that I, I, the marge, the feelings of kind of marginalization started the more that I became aware of everything that was happening outside of my little bubble at the Mason district station. Hi, this is Adrienne Galbrecht. Have you ever received an email on a giant listserv and started to hit reply all instead of just reply? If so, you're not the only one. And just always pause and double check before you hit send. Hey, this is Shauna Gibson from the Pacific Northwest. This is to all you crazy PEMCO drivers out there. Do you know what a zipper merge is? It is when you let somebody else get in front of you, and then somebody comes in behind you. You really don't have to push everybody out. So 
May you all learn the zipper merge and may the 405 and I-5 be a little bit more pleasant to drive down. Good luck with that, all of you crazy drivers. Well, let's, let's go on to you starting at the fire department and just kind of take us through your thought process, making that leap, and we'll get into the stuff that we're doing. And of course, I want to compare and contrast analysis at a police department versus analysts at a fire department. Sure. Yeah. So I, so I started my exit strategy mentally a couple of years before I left, and I knew there was no upward mobility for me with the police department. There, the crime analyst job description or you know position class in Fairfax County is just it's two positions. It's a one or a two. Um, there are supervisory positions. Well, they they have come and gone over time. Sometimes there's one. Sometimes there's two. Sometimes there's none. But I knew that that wasn't the supervisory route was not the route that I was that was going to be a good fit for me with the police department. So there was nowhere for me to go. And I was heavily invested in the county's retirement plan. And I, I, I needed to stay. So I knew that my options were pretty much going to be in the county unless if I left, it had to be a really good deal. So as I said, I'd, I'd worked with who ended up being my future boss on projects for some pedestrian data that the board of supervisors were looking at. And so she tipped me off and said, hey, this job's going to be posting, you know, take a look at it. Let me know if you're interested. And I was like, no way. I am not going <laughs> to defect over to the fire department. I don't know what... <laughs> know what you're trying to do, but it posted. And I saw that the salary was a lovely increase. And it was uh, an entry level position into the data analyst class, which goes up to four. So I knew that there was a ladder there for me to climb. And that, you know, class goes through the entire county. It's not specific to the fire department, whereas crime analysis, those positions are specific to the police department. So it's like, okay, so there's some, there's some wiggle room for me to, you know, experience, go to other places if I want to, but I was still terrified. And my husband was the only one that I told who's a police officer and met him at work, obviously. And <laughs> I told him, I was like, I'm thinking, I was like, what, what's going to happen? Like, what if, what if I do this? They're going to like, you know, everyone at the police department's going to throw the scarlet letter on me and my life will end as I know it. And I don't know how to do anything other than crime analysis. And he was like, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> like you need to just apply. The worst thing is you don't get the job. So I did, I apply, I interview, they called me and I freaked out again. And he was like, listen, just go, like go to a place where you can grow and where your value will not be, you know, will go unquestioned. Like clearly they, they picked you, they picked you for a reason, go there and everything will, will be fine. So I did. And that was three years ago, three and a half years ago. And everything is fine. <laughs> everything is great. It was, it was a good change for me, like, you know, mental and physical health wise, just to kind of retrain my brain and it's been a huge massive curve technically for me but that's been great I mean no one complains about having more technical skill nowadays and it's just you know I thought that it would be a pretty easy transition you know especially it's the same county like I don't have to learn new politics I don't have to learn new geography or new neighborhoods it's just you know instead of police cars it's going to be fire trucks now Mm -hmm. And that was not the case. <laughs> the, the industry over here is, it is very, very different. And, and there is a lot to learn. And it's, it is, it is very different. But at the end of the day, it's still just, it's just public safety data. I'm still looking at a lot of the same problems here that I was looking at on the police department but with a different lens and a different perspective and with a different level of buy-in for the work that I'm doing. So it's been good. It's been, it's, it was hard and it was so scary, but it, it was the right decision. So, and, and I'm, you know, my husband he actually just retired, but um, they, they didn't throw the scarlet, the scarlet letter on me over at the police department. Every, you know, the friends that I had before are still the friends that I have now. So that was, yeah. It. I'd hope so. How did the interview process compare between the two? It was just a panel interview for the initial position. I, I actually ended up getting promoted about a year and a half after I had been here. That one was scarier because by then I knew the people that were on the panel. And so that's mm -hmm. just a little bit scarier. But it was a very long just panel interview. Okay. And is that the same thing with the police side as well? I think 
So I don't remember taking a practical or a skills assessment for my, when I was hired as an analyst one, when I created the analyst two and I applied for for that promotion, we did have to submit work products Mm -hmm. for that. But yeah, we do at the fire department now though, we do have a, a short little skills assessment for the data analyst one positions when we hire. So what are some of the questions you're trying to answer at the fire department? So interestingly, you know, I got here at the end of 2018, everything was normal. And then a year later, this thing called COVID started to Mm -hmm. rear its ugly head. And so, you know, what I didn't realize when I first started at the fire department, which is humiliating now, was that it's it's not mostly a fire department. It's mostly an emergency medical services. Like 80% of our calls are medical calls. They're not fires. So having so much, you know, we're, we're medical providers, clinicians. And so when COVID hit, that changed our response changed how it changed how the call center took calls and screened them. It changed how we responded to them and it changed our staffing because we had providers contracting COVID. And at the very beginning, you know, you're basically in quarantine for two weeks. Now we're down to, you know, five days, but we were dealing with a lot of staffing issues and trying to figure out if, if we cannot staff all of our ambulances, if we can't staff all of our engines, our trucks, what's the least worst scenario of who we you know put out of service for a day or 30 days. And so I actually am now doing a ton of work in GIS and using some of those network analyst tools that I had so much training on at the police department, but never really indulged in using at all. And I'm actually doing a lot of that here, a lot more spatial analysis here at the fire department than I was ever really doing the police department largely, you know, the spatial analysis that I was doing as a crime analyst was largely just visual maps, you know, points on a, on a map and a little bit of, you know, with the cell phone analysis at the end, using it for that. But over here, I'm actually using, you know, the tools within Esri to, to analyze the data. And sometimes there's a, a map that's actually a work product. And sometimes I'm just using it to find information. So staffing largely has been what I was using GIS for, but we do have, you know, lots of reports that we do on a recurring basis. And so I've, I've taken a lot of that and automated it so that it's a button push, which I wish, I wish that I could have done more on that at the police department. I, I didn't know at the police department what was possible. I have, my eyes are just kind of wide open <laughs> in terms of data and technology here. I I don't, I think I must've had blinders on at the police department. I don't know, but you know, a lot of the data here is the same at police and the fire data starts at the same, you know, 911 call center. So now that I understand how much data we didn't really have access to on the police side, having access to all of it here on the fire side, data, our division, data analytics and strategy management division is very much intertwined with IT. It's not a contentious relationship like it was on the police side between crime analysis and IT. So there there are no limits to the data that I have access to. And so that's been amazing. So the, the technical skills that you referenced before, is this the GIS and the automation? Well, so GIS, the skills I had, I'm actually getting to like use them for analysis as opposed to pretty maps, but more like, you know, I was using it for demonstrative purposes on the police department. And now I'm using GIS as an actual analysis tool. We do have a BI tool on the fire side. It's different than what we had on the PD side. I don't love it as much, although I'm, I'm fully in a you know very covered relationship with it at this point because I've been using it for several years. But yeah, we're, we're using a lot of just the Microsoft Power Platform tools to automate those things that we do all the time. You know, so it's, if there's an Excel spreadsheet, I'm getting rid of it. There's, we don't use Excel for data storage or tracking here if we don't absolutely have to. And if, if the report can be scheduled, if it can be targeted to a person at a time that they need it, great, because just blasting out reports every week because someone said they want a weekly report, shotgunning that information, no one's paying attention to it after the first couple of times that they receive it. So we're using the automation tools to kind of target the recipients and give them only the information that they absolutely need to do their job on that day. The stuff that's strategic and long-term and annual, that's all on demand. You can go to it every day if you want to, but I'm not going to hit you with an email with our monthly stats at the beginning of every week. It's just silly. Yeah. Hmm. And I see here on your resume that you've won some awards for best use of GIS. Who sponsors these? Uh, well, it's a countywide exercise, if you will. And they, they bring in uh, judges from outside the county to judge submissions and anyone in the county can submit. So the 
year the year after I started here, I, I did. I got two awards. One for I did an analysis of our supplemental medic units. We have there's an ambulance at every fire station, but there's four stations that are really busy that have two. And so we were looking at if we got two more supplemental medics, what other two stations would we send them to? And then overall, are the four supplemental medics at the busy stations, are those still kind of the right stations that have them at? So I use GIS a lot there, use some weighting strategies to kind of evaluate the different types of EMS incidents, whether, you know, whether they were critical, how close they were to a hospital, all that kind of stuff. Operations actually found that really helpful. So I put that up into a little display and yeah, I won an award for that. And then we got a FEMA grant for fire, I'm sorry, smoke alarm installations. And I just put up a uh, an Esri operations dashboard to track that so that anyone in the, in the agency could pop on real quick and see how close we were to getting our goal and kind of overlaid that with like the building footprints for the uh, multi-use, like the apartment complexes so that folks could just sign on from the fire station and say, okay, you know, let's, let's go find a fire or let's go find a community that's, you know, multi higher risk, you know, the apartment complexes dense population, let's go find a place that hasn't already been hit, that hasn't already been visited to install these smoke alarms. So that would help them go to places that had, that someone else hadn't already been to. So that one got an award as well. So you mentioned there about the IT differences. This is a little bit combative on the police department side. And we talked a little bit about this in the prep call too, about just the difference on the firefighter side about metrics and data there seems to be two different ways of thinking between the police department and the fire department yeah in in my experience so obviously i've only worked for the one police department i've only worked for the one fire department but you know as a crime analyst and being as involved in IACA and VCAN as i was for many years got to meet lots of different people from lots of different places and you just kind of hear the same stories over and over again. So I think that some of the issues I was experiencing as an analyst were industry-wide, if you will. And the difference between my role there, I was much more boots on the ground as an analyst. I was you know, in patrol for 10 years and then over with SWAT and traffic for a couple of years after that. And, and in dealing largely with people that were answering calls for service. My role at the fire department is not that. I am at headquarters. I'm reporting to uh, uniformed personnel that are, you know, making all the big decisions. So I don't have that connection to the street like I did on the police side. So my audience is a little bit different. My audience is, you know, basically battalion chiefs and higher. So so there, that, there is that difference. But so I wasn't trying, you know, I'm not over here trying to convince firefighters about um, 90th percentile versus average. But when I came here, 90th percentile was a concept I had not heard since grad school. And the fire department doesn't care about averages because as we all know, like half the time you're right, half the time you're wrong. Half the time you get there in time and half the time you don't get there in time. So 90th percentile is the standard here. And so nine times out of 10, how fast are we getting to that patient? Nine times out of 10, how fast are we getting an engine to that fire? Nine times out of 10, how, how busy do we expect this unit to be? And so that, that's the bar is, is 90th percentile, not 50th percentile. That was new and it's um, very cool. And it really is kind of easier um, in a lot of ways because I don't have to worry about outliers because the 90th percentile takes care of those super long call times or super long drive times or those um, responses where someone forgot to hit a button and it goes on for you know three days. So 90th percentile has been um, a very cool change for me. So why do you think the fire department is, for lack of a better word, more willing to accept data and to have their ear on the ground in terms of data as maybe compared to the police department? So on the fire side, our accreditation process is data informed through and through. Um, We do have national standards and national benchmarks for response times, both on the the suppression, the fire side, and the EMS side, which those don't exist on the police side. There's not a, you know, a national standard for how fast you need to get somewhere. That's kind of a jurisdictional decision to make. So on the fire side, we do, you know, they say nine times out of 10, you need to get an engine to a fire within five minutes and 20 seconds. And it's been that way for a long time. Nine times out of 10, you need to get a, an ALS provider to an EMS call within five minutes. And that has to do with 
clinically, how long can a can a patient who's in cardiac arrest, you know, be without care before you know intervention becomes futile? So that's why we got to get there fast. And that that has been a thing on the fireside for decades. I think that that has a lot to do with it. And you know, fast response. You know, some some people would argue getting there faster makes everything better. And someone would argue getting the right resources there faster makes everything better. And that's a more complex problem. But just the fact that the accreditation process here is so data informed, but it, it does allow for the person to kind of look at those figures and say, yes, this makes sense, or I have an explanation for that. So it really is kind of a, a blend of qualitative and quantitative analysis that goes into everything. So I think that, that I think that that's part of the reason is that the accreditation process is a little bit different. I think we are talking about this before too. The analysis community on the fire side is loose at best. A similarity between police and fire is a lot of people that end up in civilian support roles like analysis are retired people that did that job before. So it's a retired police officer who needs a soft landing spot and gets the job as the analyst. We have a little bit of that on fire side too. But there is no there is no version of the IACA on the fire side. There's there are organizations like our accreditation organization and Metro Fire Planners, and there's some there are some organizations where analysts are welcome, and the commanders and the uniformed staff want you there because they trust what you're doing but the like there's a slack channel that's pretty much the <laughs> analysis community there's a slack channel that we kind of chime into every once in a while so it's surprising how dedicated this profession is to understanding data and analysis when the the, the community of analysts is not quite so tight-knit as it is on the pd side yeah excuse the ignorance if i'm wrong here but it currently i th- would think that the police department data would be vastly greater than the fire department data. True or false? Greater how? In terms of the number of records, the number of databases, the amount of information that an analyst has to consume versus what it would be like on the fire department side. So my answer is false with this caveat. I did not have access to all the data on the police side. I did not realize that until I left and was exposed to all of the data and how easy it is to write a SQL view or to edit a SQL view and to have access to raw data. When I was there, we did not have that. We were dependent upon a SQL view or a data table that someone else said was what we needed. And so that's not the case here. You know, I, I go directly into the CAD or I go directly into the records management system. And on this side, you know, when a, when a police officer gets dispatched, it's like that car that's going. <laughs> As everyone knows, uh, when someone gets into a car crash, the fire department sends 84 apparatus. <laughs> you just, you know, you got to block, you got to block traffic and blah, blah, blah. And, and there's a lot of good reason for that. It's, it's not necessarily the, the piece of equipment that's responded. It's, it's the person that's riding on it. And you want to make sure that an ALS provider gets to an ALS call. So Sometimes that means, you know, more than one thing is going to the, the call. So for me, because I have all the data, my job right now is so much more difficult and difficult is not the right word. Um, I have so much more data to contend with now than I ever did on the police department. A lot of the data that I was contending with on the police department was me digging it up from open sources or going somewhere else. And here I've got to contend with like HIPAA, I didn't have to worry about HIPAA at the police department. I have to worry about HIPAA here because the, the majority of our records are medical records. So I've got, mm-hmm. I've got a, an authoritative body that says this is how we report medical records to the state. And I've got a, an authoritative body that says this is how we report fire things to the feds. So there's two different types of information and sometimes I'm, I'm getting two reports for the same incident because every report gets an Emperor's report, which is the equivalent of, of NIBRS on the PD side. It's just the thing that you have to write. And if there's a patient, um, you have to write a separate report. You have to write their patient care report. So now I've got two things for the same incident. And then within the patient care report, you've got multiple medications, multiple procedures. And the worst part is Jessica LeBlanc has a heart attack today. And a week later, a different shift goes into my second heart attack. I'm not the same person in the database. I look like two different people. So that's a struggle, which I've kind of figured out a way to make create a composite ID for people that that pretty reliably matches the same person across our records management system. But yeah, I, I have a lot more data to deal with now than I ever did on the PD side. 
and that again that may just be a function of what i had access to interesting so is there fire department metrics or maybe data sets that are just for the fire department that you think analysts on the police department side should be using? I I don't know if they should necessarily be using them, but through this process of chatting with you, it really kind of hit me that once I left the police department, I did not keep up with anything that was going on over there, you know, with the analysts outside of like personal relationships that I had. And so, you know, I I actually just reached out today and said, I really think that we should be talking (laughs) a little (laughs) bit more to each other. Um, If for no reason than to say, hey, did you get this email from supervisor so-and-so? Because he's asking for this. Are you guys, you know, providing the same kind of information? Because like I was saying at the beginning, there are a lot of things here on the fire department that that I care about that I also cared about on the police side, like, you know, opioid, the opioid epidemic and pedestrian crashes and and joint responses where police and fire go together. Maybe it's a barricade, maybe it's just a, a DOA. Police and fire both share frustrations with the call center, which is a completely separate agency. But if we're having the same issue with a lag in dispatch time or, or a lag in, you know, picking up the call time, then maybe if we go together and say, hey, we're both seeing this problem, can you help us? So there's, there's actually quite a bit of overlap. And while, you know, the police side has restrictions on, on what they can share through criminal justice code and the fire department has restrictions on what they can share in terms of medical records and PHI, there's still quite a bit that we can and should both care about at the same time. And it's, you know, it's a big fail on my part to have not thought of it before our conversations because it's been a a semi-regular occurrence that I'm being asked for information or for data on an issue that I know the police department is responding on as well. And I shouldn't be sitting here going, gee, I wonder what they're going to (laughs) say. I wonder what numbers they're going to have. I bet mine are going to be better. I bet my math's going to be prettier. I mean, that's super silly. So, so today just reached out and said, Hey, we should, we should chat. We should at least if for, if for no other reason, like, I mean, I, I kind of know what's going on over there because I did that job for a long time, but I haven't done that job for a long time. So maybe there, maybe there are different things. Maybe they're doing things. And even if it's not data that we need to be sharing, as I said, it's public safety data. You're just kind of looking at it from two different perspectives, which is a good thing. That's why the FBI has biologists and chemists and, you know, all kinds of different people working on the same team to solve the problem because they're coming at it with a different perspective. And so we're all kind of working with the same data. We're working in the same place. We just have two different perspectives. And maybe maybe I'm reporting in a way that makes sense to the police department that they can copy and maybe they're producing a product that makes sense for me to kind of morph on the fire side too. We're using the same data. We have a lot of the same tools. There's no reason that we should not be stealing best practices from each other, even if we're not necessarily sharing the exact same data. Yeah, Because I, I did that on the PD side. That's what we do, right? Like, hey, who has done this before? And a million people respond to your email and say, I've done this before. Here's what I did. And mm-hmm. We, because we don't have that kind of community on the fireside yet, there's that building. Um, we do have our Slack channel, which is helpful. Um, <laughs> but like, there's no reason that I can't reach out to the PD folks and say, who's reporting opioids this way? Or who's looking at pool drownings? Like, who, who's looking at barricades? And, and how are you guys tracking how long it takes for the fire department to be able to allow to get up to the scene when it, when it gets warm and it's safe for them to go? Like, there's just, there's so much that we can and should at least be talking about, even if we're not necessarily diving into a full-on, you know, committed relationship. Yeah. When I was living just south of Nashville, I signed up to be part of both the Citizens Police Academy and the Citizens Fire Academy. So I would recommend anybody listening to that, if your community does that, to sign up for both of those. Because those are a wealth of information and you definitely get a, a better idea of what your local fire department is doing. I do have another one that uh, question I want to ask you before we move on to a different topic. And this is another true or false statement. Overall, firemen and women <laughs> keep themselves in better shape than police men or women. True or false? That is a great question. Okay. I have to qualify it. Again. I'll <laughs> I'll say true 
And again, and I'm sure everyone that's on the police side is listening to like, yeah, because they sleep until they're hungry and they eat till they're tired and, you know, there's all the time to work out. So I, I get it. And, and yes, they're, you know, perceptively the firefighters have more time on their hands, but that's not necessarily the case at all. So I qualify my statement because again, kind of going back to standards, the fire department, we have fitness standards. If you cannot meet certain standards then you're on a fitness improvement plan. And the PD side does not have that. So there is some incentive for the firefighters to stay minimally fit. And it is the same argument. It's about your longevity after you retire from this job. And it's about safety when you're on the job. You want the people that you work with to be able to help you if you're in trouble. And you want to be able to help the people that you work with if they are in trouble. So it's an officer safety issue for the PD. And it's just an occupational safety issue for fire. And you want to make sure that if you fall through a floor, you have the upper body strength to pull yourself up and get help or that the person that you're working with has the strength to help you if you can't help yourself. So we do have a pretty robust at at Fairfax physical and mental health crew of full-time trainers, mental health professionals, and dietitians and physical strength coaches. And they go out to the station and there's an annual, you know, fitness uh, measurement assessment program that they, that everybody goes through. And it's kind of similar to the U.S. Marshall Service program. I've been through it myself. I just kind of said, hey, I want to see what it is that they have to do to be considered physically fit. Um, and it measures your strength and it measures your your VO2, like your, your recovery from cardio activity. And that's the one that they really care about is making sure that your heart is healthy. So I think that at least in Fairfax County, from my experience, and this is not, now I really am going to get the scarlet letter. Now, anyone in Fairfax that listens is going to put the scarlet letter on me. But they do, they have, there. there is some incentives to being healthy because it's, you're assessed on it every single year. So you heard it here first. Jessica thinks <laughs> the police are a bunch of out of shape pigs. Yep, just eating, <laughs> eating donuts, out there eating donuts. All right. Very good. So I see uh, again on your resume that you're a member of the Center of Public Safety Excellence. Yes. And I'm not too familiar with that. What is that? And what do you, why are you a member? So it's the body that accredited fire departments across the United States. So it's, it's the equivalent of the police department accreditation, national accreditation agency. That's just it's the Center for Public Safety Excellence on the fire side. So they, there's a whole accreditation process where you, you have to express interest and they say, yes, looks like you guys are good to go. And then it's a year long process to do your self-assessment and write your standards of cover and do your risk assessment. And then you go before a board and you get grilled and they say, you know, yep, you're accredited. We, you have done all of the things that we think make an excellent fire department. And you are a great example of what a good fire department is or come back and try again later. And then you go up every five years. And so we're going up for reaccreditation next year. So right now we're just kind of starting the process of, of conducting our risk assessment, checking out what we did the last time, making some adjustments to those variables, and then writing our standards of cover, which is just kind of a big, long document that details the history of the fire department and kind of describes what we do and how all the stations are unique to the community, blah, 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 blah. So that's yeah. what that is. It's just the accreditation agency. And they, they have a conference every year and you go and learn about how to do a better job with your application. It's for people that are just for agencies who are just getting ready to be accredited. But that's where I do actually kind of get the most analysis help, if you will, because so much analysis goes into the accreditation process. So it's a good conference for, um, I think I want to be accredited or I'm already accredited or I've been accredited. And I really just kind of want to make sure that I'm keeping pace and, and pushing the envelope. And so you kind of get your ideas there for what other agencies are doing. Fire is very focused on outcomes as, as opposed to output. So it's not like, hey, did burglary go up or down? Did cardiac arrest go up or down? What does that mean for the community? What, what is the impact to the community or to the agency when you're looking at each metric? So it's, it's not, the industry here is less, I mean, metrics are important. It's, it's, a, it's a starting point, but then it's really a conversation and storytelling about what does that mean to the community? Yeah. 
Hmm. How does that translate? Whether it's dollars, whether it's a better ISO rating, whether it's just a healthier community and, and they're in less need of advanced interventions because they're healthier. And it does kind of drive our community risk reduction efforts as well. Back to law enforcement analysis. When you look back, you know, when you started in 2004, what are you surprised by that the profession hasn't figured out yet that you thought back in 2004 by 2022, oh, they'll have it figured out, but yet the profession's still struggling with it? Oh, man. Well, I guess my, from my perspective now, I'm, I'm surprised that more isn't automated because so much of, of crime analysis, or at least the, the part that I really enjoyed doing, which was the tactical stuff, that you can't automate a lot of that. It's just a lot of digging and a lot of compiling. And so the benefit to automating some of that repetitive stuff, the weekly reports, the annual reports, the citizen reports, all of that stuff that you, you literally do the exact same thing over and over again. It's really not a big lift to automate that kind of thing. And I did. I hated typing in narratives. I hated pumping out the same word document, weekly report. And I'm surprised that some of that hasn't just been full-blown automated. I know that that BI tools are becoming a, a much more regular tool for, for at least the larger agencies to use. And so I, I think that they're getting there, but I, I think that there's lots of room for improvement. Okay, good. Now on to personal interests, you are a yoga person. So five yeah. days a week, is that right? Yeah. I mean, there's, a, you know, occasionally this week we had a, a thing on Tuesday morning and I, I couldn't make it. I had to come straight to work. But yeah, normally five days a week. That's, I am getting stretched out and, and doing hot yoga and just spending one hour of letting my brain not think about everything. Wow. So I did I did hot yoga for the first time over the weekend. How'd that go? It it was okay. I went with my sister-in-law who has done it so much, she could probably be certified and be a trainer. So she yeah. does it regularly. This is Mallory from Rough and Tumble. So Rough and Tumble did the theme song to our podcast. So help those that have helped us check out their music at theroughandtouple.com. And so she, she helped me out a lot. I think in hindsight, what she did though, is she put me in the middle in like in the middle row off to the far side of the room. Yeah. Which I thought, oh, okay, that's fine. If I start losing my balance, I can grab the wall. Good deal. <laughs> the only downside to that is there was positions where you naturally are looking towards the wall. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't see the rest of the class to see if I was doing it correctly. Oh, but you're not supposed to care. That's the whole part of yoga. Well, like you're just, it's just whatever's yeah. happening on your mat. Nobody else cares. Oh man. But so then, and then we had an instructor that just did, did not give very much instruction and was very <laughs> like, boom, 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 boom. I mean, I swear we did like 60 different things in the, in that 60 minute class. I mean, it was just one after the other, like I, it felt more like an aerobic workout to me than it did yoga. Yeah, I will. I mean, I burn as many calories in an hour of yoga as I do walking five miles or something. It's one of those things I kind of get in, you get out of it what you put into it. And it's, it's really the IACA's fault that I even found <laughs> it because it, I mean, yoga is again, anyone who knows me, if they, if you said I do yoga, they would be like, I, that's not the person that I know because I'm a little bit type A, um, not even a little bit, a lot type <laughs> A, like wishy-washy, touchy-feely things are not like, it, you know, feelings and emotion are not, they're not things that I just really embrace very much. So I was out teaching the tactical class in Colorado and it, the altitude was killing me. I, I couldn't run outside. I couldn't walk outside. And across the street from my hotel was this yoga studio and they had like a free two week trial. I was like, okay, whatever, I'll give that a shot. And that's, that's it. That's the end of the story. I got, I got hooked. And fortunately they have, you know, the same franchise has studios out here in Virginia. So yeah, I, I dig it. And I tell my husband all the time, like there's, there's no overlap in those two worlds for me. There's none of the people that are in my yoga classes, none of my teachers. I don't, they don't follow me on Instagram. They know my name, my first name, but there's, there's no overlap and there's no one on the (laughs) other side of the world that like I don't bring my friends to my, my work friends or my neighborhood friends to yoga with me. So if I died in the yoga studio, it's going to take them a long time to like notify next weekend because there's just zero overlap. And I just kind of like it that way. Uh, yoga is your secret life. 
it you're is hitting, hitting it is life. and and people are surprised about about that which is fair because i'm pretty you know black and white kind of person and so to kind of do something that's kind of calming i think probably surprises people but it's good like it's it's a it's a good mental exercise it's a good physical exercise and like i said it's not something that i was ever looking for in fact i was like people that do yoga are just crunchy <laughs> crunchy you know, like environmentalists or something and there are some of those but there's also just all different kinds of people so. yeah tree hugging hippies right exactly that's what i thought <laughs> and i i do love plants so i but i'm not i wouldn't put myself in the tree hugger category but i do love plants and i do love yoga and those are and completely inconsistent with my general personality. Good. So our last segment of the show is Words of the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Jessica, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Thanks, Jason. So I, I think I would say to say thank you. I think in, in the jobs that we have that are kind of defined by helping others, acknowledging success isn't always automatic because that help is what you expected as a as opposed to some kind of like exceptional outcome, which, you know, kind of draws your attention or prompts your gratitude. So I'd like to just thank a few standout people that pushed me at points in my career where I just kind of needed the shove. So first, we've already talked about her, but thank you to Rachel Santos for being that single source of encouragement in a time and place where I just kind of felt like a constant underachiever and for introducing me to crime analysis, which kicked this whole thing off. Thank you to Angela Offmuth at NECMEC for convincing me that risks are worth taking and to ignore the naysayers and that being my harshest critic, I should just knock that off. Thanks to Jen Koner for letting me ride her coattails from VCAN all the way over to the IACA. She played a big role in coaching me through these roles of leadership and contribution. And without that, I very well may have just spent my career kind of learning through osmosis. Thanks to my husband, Rob, who taught me that analysis is as much marketing as it is examination. He shortcut a lot of hard lessons for me in becoming successful as a civilian in policing. Words matter, tone matters, timing matters. And so when my soft skills are suffering, he has always kind of helped me to write them. And lastly, a big thank you to Maura Power and John Morrison, who are my fire influencers. They see potential in me that I'm still kind of skeptical will manifest in the ways that they think that it will, but I'm grateful for their patience and their confidence. I feel like I'm kind of at a stumbling sprint trying to keep up with them every day. But as John has said many times, I want you to feel uncomfortable because if you're not uncomfortable, you're not learning. And I think there's a ton of truth in that. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. Perfect. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Jessica. Thank you so much. And you be set. It's been fun. You as well. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.